You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you're not an authorised financial advisor, it's important you understand the content of this podcast may be difficult to follow, as it assumes you have the necessary training, qualifications and experience to understand the concepts discussed as well as the technical language used. If you still decide to listen, please understand the information contained in this recording is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Any scenarios considered during this podcast are purely hypothetical and for illustrated purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. In this year's federal budget, the government made a number of superannuation announcements which have recently been introduced into the House of Representatives as a new bill. My name is Craig Day, head of the First Tech team, and here to talk to me about the detail of the changes and what's included in the bill are my senior technical services manager. So I've got Tim. G'day, Tim. G'day, Craig. Kim. Hello. Hello. And the lovely Linda. Hey, lovely Craig. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Okay, guys. So in last year's federal budget, we had a whole bunch of announcements uh, come out that was going to change a whole bunch of different things in relation to superannuation. So we've now finally got a bill. So let's talk about the detail of that bill just to see, because, you know, when, when the budget first came out, there's a lot of people go, oh, well, this is what they said, but we've got to wait for the detail and the detail is in the bill. So Kim, the first change that they talked about was a superannuation guarantee change in relation to a 450 minimum. So do you want to just let us know what, what they've, what's happening there? Yeah, so under current rules, and it's been this way for a long time, employers don't have to pay super guarantee if an employee earns less than $450 in a calendar month. Um, and this bill proposes to get rid of that $450 um, limit and so that employers have to pay super guarantee regardless of how much um, employees earn, which is a really positive change. It's it's aimed at helping those people who are on, you know, earning low incomes or maybe they've got multiple employers and they're earning a little bit from a, a number of employers. Um, so it's aimed at making sure that they're getting some superannuation um, from those kind of arrangements. So why was that 450 minimum there in the first place? Yeah, originally they they wanted to make it easier for employers, you know, having to um, pay small amounts of money for employees that are earning very much. So they were trying to, to you know, reduce the administrative burden. Um, but that really, now that we have new technology, we've got things like single-touch payroll, et cetera, it's pretty easy for employers to... Um, make contributions for multiple employees. So, so really that reason perhaps is not there as, as much anymore. Yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, we've got mm. Superstream and, you know, single touch payroll. So there's, you know, you back in the good old days, I can imagine employers used to have to cut checks and then send the checks off. And if you've got a check for $4.52, mm. um, I can imagine the employers wouldn't have liked that too much. But these days it's all done electronically through single touch payroll, all that sort of stuff. So, um, the reason for it. There's also an aspect around um, the difference in super between men, men and women, isn't there? That's, there's an aspect yeah. of that that's changed. Yeah, there is. So they reckon about 300,000 people will 
you know, be impacted and receive super now that that wasn't weren't receiving super before. And sixty three percent of those are women. Um, so you know, more uh, women will will benefit from this change um, as to start receiving super contributions where they weren't previously. Right. Well, that is good news. Um, if we think about employers, I suppose that means their wage bills. <laughs> Just about to go up by 10, 10% for their part-time employees. Yeah, it could do. So, so probably mm-hmm. for a lot of employees who, um, you know, if they're on sort of those kind of casual employment arrangements, they're unla- unlikely to be on a contract which specifies that, you know, they they get a total amount. Um, they're, they're probably going to receive the same wage that they were before plus an additional 10% um, going into their superannuation account in a lot of cases. So that will mean um, for those employers that it will be an additional cost that they need to pay. Now, from a purely self-interested perspective, I've got a 15-year-old daughter that works <laughs> at a fast food chain. Does, uh, does this mean that she's now going to get SG? Only if she's working more than 30 hours a week. Oh, so yeah. you know, if she's being which she's not. That's good because she should be at school. Um, yes, yeah. yeah, so she's probably not going to get super guaranteed. Yeah, so all of those people out there with kids doing part time jobs while they're at school and all that sort of stuff, if they're under age eighteen, this probably makes absolutely no difference to them until they turn eighteen. And what about our older workers? I would imagine. So if I've got someone that's retired and they're doing a bit of part time work, you know, they've got the work bonus thing going. Hmm. How does that then work for them? Yeah, so they they may not have an accumulation account anymore. They may have um, you know started off their account based pension, um, and so now they have to have an accumulation account to get those super guarantee amounts paid into. So either they're going to have to start one up and and um, choose that fund to receive the contributions, or if they don't have an account, then they don't have a stapled fund under this new stapled mm-hmm. fund rules, and so the employer may have to contribute to like a default fund um, for them if they don't have an accumulation account. So it's interesting, isn't it? You kind of think about this change probably won't impact advisors that much, but there, there may well be some clients coming in saying, oh, I've got to have a superannuation account now because of my part-time work and now I'm going to get SG. Um, and so that could impact there. Mm. Interesting. Um, now, Linda, we also had some changes to First Home Super Saver Scheme, didn't we? Yes, we did. So do you want to run through how that currently works and then outline what the change there is? Sure. So how it works, at the moment, um, an individual never owned a property in the past. They are able to make voluntary contributions to super. That includes voluntary employer uh, concessional or voluntary non-concessional contributions. And when the time is right, they can contribute up to $15,000 a year. And then uh, in the next um, uh, multiple years later, depending on how much they contribute, they are able to apply to the ATO and apply to release up to $30,000 of those voluntary contributions from their super account uh, to help them uh, to purchase their first home. So if they do have a partner, the two of them, if both eligible, they could potentially release um, this up to $60,000 plus associated earnings between the two of them from a super to help mm-hmm. them to purchase their first home. Mm-hmm. Um, you want me to, to go through the changes, Craig? Yeah, yep, yeah. Yep, if you could. Okay, so very simple. What is changing that a maximum releasable amount, $30,000, will go up to $50,000. 
However, there's no change to the amount they can accumulate on a yearly basis. It's still kept at um, $15,000 voluntary contribution level. So maximum they can contribute uh, would be uh, still uh, at $15,000, uh, but the maximum amount they can release to help them is increased to $50,000. It just means it will take them a little bit longer to get there. Okay. And so I suppose they're just doing this because housing affordability allow you to save a bit more via super, which may help you spend even more on a house. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, um, Kim, downsizer. Yes. So what's changing there? Well, under current rules, you can make a downsizer contribution when you sell your house if you're age 65 and over. But under the new proposed changes, that age is going to drop down to age 60. So people between 60 and 65 can also make downsizer contributions when they sell their house. Okay, so that's a nice, simple little change. Take out 65 and put in 60. I suppose the implications, though, um, so what does that mean from an advice perspective? Yeah, so there's actually quite a bit to it. Um, so now I guess we have a choice. Um, we've, we've got people, well, I mean, I guess we should start off with now we have the opportunity to get even more into super. So if I'm age 62 and I sell my house and I have, um, I could make a bring forward contribution of 330000 mm. plus I could make a downsizer contribution of 300000 so that would be 630000 that I can now get into super. So that's definitely an opportunity. And if I'm a member of a couple and both of us put in 630 then that's 1.26 million so that's quite a big opportunity to get more money into super um but there's also if i don't have that much to put in if i have a lesser amount say 200,000 how should i contribute that 200,000 to super if i sell my home should i make it a downsizer contribution or should i make it a non-concessional bring forward type contribution so we have some choices that we have to make now as to the type of contribution that's going to be important, isn't it? Because, you know, we've got this $300,000 amount. So um, if I'm selling a house for, let's say, $400,000, um, if I was going to do $300,000 and then $100,000 downsizer, then I've now used up all of my downsizer in one go of $100,000, right? So you might flip that around and do the downsizer for three hundred, dollars and then only do $100,000 non-concessional but I suppose the other way to think about that is also that you might have some people that want to prioritize a downsize sorry a non-concessional contribution because at some point down the track they're going to sell the new home that they're going into maybe to go into a retirement village or something along that along those lines um, at, at age 75 plus because remember there's no age limit for downsizer contributions and so they might want to keep their powder dry for that that contribution down that's right it's once in a lifetime thing isn't it downsizer so once you've used it that's it so you probably want to um if you have the choice you might want to use non-concessional now and keep it for later on when you might sell a house in the future and i suppose also gives us now an opportunity to contribute for a, for a younger spouse doesn't it because um if we've got the one amount that we're wanting to make as a downsizer contribution we've got a couple and the older person is just about to reach age pension age what would the strategy be there? Yeah, that's right. One of our favourite strategies, isn't it, is to put superannuation in a younger spouse's name. If they're underage pension age and it's an accumulation phase, then it's exempt from the asset and income test can be very effective. So a downsizer contribution now that we can make them from age 60 onwards might be an opportunity to, to get that money into the younger spouse's name. I suppose what we need to think about there, though, is because previously when 
the work test applied from 65, or sorry, not the work test, the downsizer contributions was from 65, which in itself is the age for the condition of release. So people would be making downsizer contributions and immediately unrestricted and preserved. But now, if I'm making a downsizer contribution at age 60 or 61, something like that, then that money is going to be preserved. So that's also something that I've got to take into consideration. Yeah, that's right. It's um, If you need access to that money, um, we, we need to think about whether we made a conditional release such as retirement after making that contribution. Well, I suppose there's, there's one final risk involved here is if I make a downsizer contribution and I turn out to be not eligible for some reason. Maybe there was some issues with the timing of the notice or turns out that the property I've sold wasn't eligible because the house had previously burned down. There's a whole bunch of reasons or I simply didn't meet the timeframes, right? I've put it in as a downsizer, but then what the ATO says is that if that turns out not to be eligible, what the trustee now needs to do is to assess that against the other contribution caps. Now, if the client is over 65, or let's say even over 67, um, they don't satisfy a work test, then that contribution actually needs to be reversed back out because the trustee couldn't have accepted it as any other type of contribution. But if we're now doing that as, let's say, 62, well, there is no work test at age 62, obviously. Um, so in that situation, that contribution can actually stay within the fund and be assessed against the non-concessional cap. And if I've already put in my $300,000 non-concessional cap, then as the strategy we were talking about before, about the 1.26, then all of a sudden I've got $300,000 worth of excess non-concessional contribution. Yeah, so if I've already made my 330000 under the bring forward and I've used up all my non-concessional cap and now there's some additional $300,000 contribution that I thought was a downsizer but isn't because I didn't meet the rules, it, now I've exceeded my non-concessional cap, you're quite right, so so that could be an and issue. You could have quite a significant tax liability depending on the client's circumstances. So, yeah, sounds great, is great, but there is just some little risks that we need to be aware of. All right, moving on from, from that one, moving on to the probably the bigger ticket item that will be of interest to a lot of advisors is the announcement of the removal of the work test for people between age 67 and 67 and 75. Now, Linda, what have they done here? Very interesting here, right? So when we think about the work test, we all think about it's an eligibility condition, whether or not an individual in that age group is able to make a contribution. Uh, in other words, it's acceptance condition. Uh, it rests uh, on the trustees, rely on the member in that age group, 67 and 75, to make a declaration. They have met the work test or met the work test exemption prior to making that voluntary personal contribution to super. Otherwise, it's not possible for the trustee to accept that contribution. Very interesting what the bill, uh, what the bill is saying. They made amendment to the tax law. So it looks like at some stage, uh, the government said in the media release as well, they are going to amend the CC regulations. We think how it works is going uh, that the government is going to remove the work test from the acceptance conditions. 
we think the trustee of the super fund is able to accept a personal contribution from the individual in that uh, age group without having the individual making that work test or work test exemption declaration. So when the contribution is made to the fund, then the work test will only become relevant if the individual wants to claim that amount as a deduction. In okay, other words, yeah. Yeah, that's that's important because I probably didn't introduce it properly right right at the beginning because what they said in the budget announcement was we're going to get it rid of the work test for non-concessional contributions and salary sacrifice contributions and, and did say that if you still want to claim a tax deduction, then the work test would still apply, right? So if they do go into the regs and simply remove the work tests, that's really interesting because that would allow all personal contributions, which not only include non-concessionals, but would also allow small business CGT, so contributions under the lifetime CGT cap, personal injury contributions. So they are two quite important things. So we have to wait and see the detail. But what you're then saying is that they've now taken those work tests out of the CIS regs, or we think that they will, they haven't done that yet, and they're now proposing to put those work tests into the The Tax Act. Yeah. So now we're moving away from you have to meet a work test to claim Sorry, to make a contribution. Now we're moving to the point where you have to meet a work test to claim a tax deduction for your personal contribution. That's absolutely correct. And also it's interesting about the timing, right? Uh, think about uh, when it's acceptance condition. The person will need to have already done that work test, a work test mm-hmm. exemption before they make the contribution. But in the, with the wording that uh, available that we can see, it appears that the person can make the contribution without meeting the work test. They can, at some stage in the financial year, the contribution is made to meet that work test, even after the contribution is made. And how the individual needs to uh, show to the ATO, I have done the work test in the financial year, so I'm able to claim a deduction. It's not very clear at the moment. It would be one of the two ways, right? They will need to declare maybe to the super fund when they lodge the notice of intent, I have done the 40 hours within 30 days. Uh, Or uh, maybe they have to show it to the ATO when they make the uh, lodge the tax return that I hmm. haven't made, met the work test or work test exemption. But at this stage, it's not entirely clear how the process will look like. Okay, so that's also interesting because I, I can see a risk there similar to what I was talking to before about with Kim was about if I go and make my personal contribution. So let's say I put in $330,000 worth of non-concessional and then I'll put in an extra twenty seven and a half, which I'm intending to claim as a tax deduction. That all goes in and then I'm thinking, well, I will satisfy my work test later in the year, no problems, and then you get to 30 June and you haven't satisfied the work test. Well, that 27 and a half is now, that's now a non-concessional contribution, never gets to con- convert across to being a concessional contribution. So you're going to end up with an excess. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, very, very interesting. We'll have to wait. So I think the the detail about how you actually tell the ATO that you've satisfied the work test, whether that's going to be in the tax return or whether they will amend the the, the notice requirements when you tell the trustee that you want to claim a tax stock, we, we don't know. We have to wait and see. It'll be interesting to see how it, it develops. Um, now, Tim, as part of this, they in, a, in the budget night, there was some ambiguous wording in there about the bring forward rule as part of um, getting rid of the work test between you know 67 and 75. Um, 
what have they done here? So they have um, the amended bill uh, would extend the bring forward rule um, through to age age seventy four. So the the change mm-hmm. in the bill itself would say rather than having to be under sixty seven at some point during that first year. Um, from 1 July 2022, you just have to be under 75 at some point in that first year. Now, now also as part of that, when on, on budget night, I remember looking at this and then in the days after we were saying, okay, well, if you can do your three-year bring forward, would you be able to do it at 74? Because remember, we can't make any non-concession personal contributions from age 75 or that 28-day period after. So should I be able to bring forward my my non-concessional contributions from when I would either be or otherwise be 75 or 76. So what did they do there? Yeah, so this is where a bit of uncertainty arises um, between what it appears in the the amended bill versus um, what they've said in the explanatory memorandum. So firstly, to say, obviously, it, it under the existing super rules, it wouldn't be possible to physically make contributions after reaching it that 28 days after the end of the month you turn 75. But we're talking mm-hmm. here about being able to essentially bring forward caps that would exist after that point. And what the explanatory memorandum um, said about that was that it wasn't the intention of um, these amendments to enable people who are approaching age 75 to bring forward non-concessional contributions from future years where they wouldn't have had eligible cap space. So we're thinking that means, well, uh, years where they would be 75 or over, over for the whole year and not able to physically make non-concessional contributions in those years. But the amended bill itself um, is kind of at odds with that, I think, and it simply allows, the amended bill would simply allow someone who is under 75 in that, uh, at the start of that year to uh, utilise the bring forward rule in the normal way. Yeah, so there is that contradiction. So the way that the EM talks about it is that as you approach 75, so let's say I'm 72, I can do two years worth of bring forward, but when I turn 73, I can only bring forward next year's when I'm 74 because I can't do it when I'm 75. So that would only allow in, when I'm 73, 220. When I turn 74, I can only do 110 under the current caps, of course, um, because I can't bring forward next year or the year after because I can't contribute in those years. So so the EM kind of talks that way, but the bill itself read literally unless we're missing something here, and I've talked to a lot of other people in industry over the last 24 hours, and they're all saying the same thing, that read literally at 74, you should be able to do a $330,000 contribution. So we have to wait and get some clarification about how that works. My my imagining is that Treasury will stick with their intention about, you know, a diminishing access, but at the moment, the way it reads is technically you could do 330 at 74. Whether we'll need to see some sort of amendment to the bill if if to get that intention through, if that's the government's intention. Yeah, yeah. Now, in terms of strategies, what, what do we think this is going to really open up for people? Yeah, so I think um, it, kind of combining the abolishing the work test for non-concessional contributions with the increase in age for the bring forward rule. I mean, this abolishing the work test is going to lead to many more years where people will have full access to their superannuation, but also be able to make non-concessional contributions. And that could lead to much more powerful and longer recontribution strategies than we've seen under current rules. 
So that can provide a, a potentially big benefit depending on the client situation. And with the expanded access to the bring forward rule, that will also mean that if we're doing those recontribution strategies, we might not have to do that every single year. We can do it on a, a three yearly basis depending on the client's eligibility. Yeah, wow, wow. So a big opportunity for those people that you know, sitting there with a pension, they're 70 years old or 68 or whatever, and they haven't done the recontribution. There's a lot of taxable component. Maybe they're now divorced or their spouse is predeceased and they're worried about that death benefit tax to the kids. Then they've got this ability now to recycle it out and back in to, to, to deal with that situation. Um, now, moving on from the work test, the other uh, announcement here, which actually wasn't from the budget, um, it was prior to that is in relation to segregation of fund assets. So do you want to just quickly run us through what what this is? Yeah, sure. So th- this kind of arises because of um, a, a view from the ATO put out back in 2016 that where you have uh, an SMSF where the fund is for part of an income year 100% in retirement phase, let's say everything used uh, paying account-based pensions, and then in another part of the income year it's got uh, – either partially or fully accumulation assets. Um, the ATO took the view that we really have to treat that as two separate parts of the year for exempt income purposes. You have your period where you've got segregated pension assets when you're 100% in retirement phase and the uh, treated differently for the remainder of the income year. And that was quite different to how the industry, uh, some in the industry were applying that rule. In that situation, they were just potentially applying the unsegregated approach for the entire financial year. And so that's really where this proposal came from to allow funds in that situation where they've got part of the year in in either situation. The default will still apply as per the ATO's view, um, but funds will have uh, a choice in that situation to instead apply the unsegregated approach over the whole whole financial year. All right. So if I give you an example, so let's say we've got Bill and Mary, um, Bill's retired, He's drawing an account-based pension from his self-managed chip fund. Mary is in accumulation phase because she's still working. So in that situation, that fund would probably be using the unsegregated method. Then we get to, you know, today and Mary says, I've had enough of work. I'm now retiring. I've turned 65. I've got access to my money or whatever. And in that situation, she now converts all of her accumulation entitlement into the pension phase. So what we're saying for under the current rules is from 1 July up until today, the fund was using the unsegregated method. Yep. And then from today to the end of the year, we're fully in pension mode. So that by default is segregated. So the therefore the accountant, person doing the tax return for the fund actually has to use the two different methodologies to figure out what the fund's tax liability is, which is kind of crazy, right? So what this, what you're telling me is what the, the government has done here in the bill is actually to go back to the way that industry used to unofficially administer it. They'd say in that particular year, instead of using both of those methodologies, which is complex and expensive, we're just going to apply the unsegregated method to the whole of the year. That's right. So they can make a choice just to apply the unsegregated approach to the whole of that year. Right. So I suppose there would be interesting in some situations, you know, it it might cost more to do the unsegregated method because you've got to use both of those methodologies, but you might get a tax benefit out of doing that. To use the default approach? 
Yeah. Yeah. So no, yeah, to use the default approach. So for the part, first bit of the year, that's unsegregated. And then from the po- point in time when I'm fully in retirement phase, I'm using the unsegregated, sorry, the segregated approach. I, I suppose I've got to think about, is there a tax outcome there? If it's one way or the other, it's significant one way or the other, I might want to opt to use um, or the de- opt to use the default approach and not choose to use the unsegregated method over the whole of the year. I suppose it depends on what I'm selling and all that sort of stuff and the timeframes. Um, but I suppose there's still an obligation there for someone to have a think about that. That's right. So from a CGT perspective, if we've got large um, assets being sold with large uh, capital gains, it can be an important choice because if you're having that segregated approach for part of the year, then the timing of your sale of assets becomes very important. In other words, were they segregated when the asset was sold? Um, Whereas if you're using the unsegregated approach for the whole of the year, so making the new choice that's available, then that timing of the sale isn't all that relevant, but the timing of when you have commenced or commuted those pensions becomes uh, quite important in working out the exempt income. Sorry, go on. Yeah, and so, so probably two, um, two considerations there from CGT perspective. If there is a large CGT that's going to be realised or capital gain, it might be better to use that default approach so that gain can be sold while it is a segregated pension asset. Mm-hmm. But then also, you know, if, if something goes wrong and an asset has accidentally been sold when it wasn't a segregated pension asset, then potentially we can get a better outcome by making the choice to apply the unsegregated approach for the whole of the year and at least try and have as much of that gain as possible be exempt. So what you're talking about there is accidentally (laughs) not being a pension asset is I would imagine you've given your fund a notice to fully commute your pension before you actually sold the asset. And so by the time you sell the assets now an accumulation asset and if you're using the default approach then you know, it's potentially if the fund's fully not in pension phase anymore, then that, you know, significant CGT liability. Whereas if you then chose to apply the unsegregated method, then that applies to the whole of the year and the CGT could be significantly reduced in that situation. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Now, um, Tim, just to clarify, this is what the bill includes, but there's a number of budget announcements that haven't yet been released. Do you want to just run through what they are? Yeah, that's right. And probably just to pick up on that um, segregated change that we just talked about, that's one of the few changes in this bill that actually is proposed to apply from this financial year rather than 1 July 2022. Oh, that's that's a good point because all of those other things are from 1 July 2022. And so some of the other key um, super proposals out of the recent budget, um, but which we haven't seen in this bill, so we await a bill to be, be put in place for those, include... Uh, two changes to SMSF residency, so removing the active member test and um, changes to the safe harbour uh, temporary absence rule under the central management control test. And also that two-year window that's been proposed to allow certain people to exit certain legacy pensions. Um, so there's some key proposals which we haven't seen uh, a bill introduced as yet. And actually the detail of those are really, really important because, uh, you know, there's talk about, you know, you can go and commute your complying pension, but then in reserves allocated back are going to be included in the fund's accessible income. So then there's all this, well, what is actually a reserve? So all of that detail, we still don't yet know. So um, we just have to wait and see for when that new bill comes out. Could be in the current sitting or we might have to wait a bit longer for that. All right, guys, I think that's 
summarizes everything. If you've got any questions, give us a call on the team. But otherwise, Tim, Kim, Linda, thank you. Thank Thanks. You. See you guys. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please remember, these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you're not an authorised financial advisor, you need to remember that any scenarios considered during this podcast were for purely hypothetical and illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. And finally, you should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decision and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be reliable and accurate, no person including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited or Commonwealth Bank Group of Companies accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.